Happy May Day, Sarah. Happy May Day, Josh. Um, well, we're we're a few days after May Day now, but um, as our sneaky little secret appears to be out that we record this podcast ahead of time. What? <laughs> um, but yes, it was indeed May Day this week, um, May 1st, which is International Workers' Day, except in this country when we have Labor Day in the fall because our government doesn't like things like international solidarity. We do have Loyalty Day on May 1st on the federal calendar. Yes, because... Anyway, let's just not even go into that. I could, I could get into a very long treatise about the difference between loyalty and solidarity, but y'all really don't want to hear that that much. Tune um, in next week. For that. <laughs> Tune in next week. Um, but yeah, so this May Day, around the country, there were marches, there were rallies, there were events with workers, immigrant workers particularly, um, especially this year in the shadow of a possible comprehensive immigration reform bill. There's going to be a lot of attention going forward on immigrant worker issues. And I know that here in New York, the Immigrant Worker Justice Group was marching to Chuck Schumer's office to protest the problems with the comprehensive reform bill that came out of the so-called Gang of Eight. Moral of the story, never trust a gang of however many mostly male U.S. senators. Um, In any case, as far as our news roundup goes, um, I want to start out with talking about a wildcat strike at a sushi restaurant in Philadelphia um, called Fat Salmon Sushi. Um, Workers that have been organizing with the Restaurant Opportunity Center Philly um, went on strike over wage theft, um, retaliation, and more. The workers have been forced to pool their tips, and then the manager was hanging on to them and taking a cut of their tips. When they protested this and asked about their money, they had their shifts cut, they were verbally abused. So some of the workers are on strike and others have now joined the organization, although they are not all out on strike. This is possibly, we're not entirely sure on this, they might be the first strike of restaurant workers in Philadelphia. If anybody knows about prior restaurant strikes of workers in Philadelphia, um, do let us know at the hashtag belabored on Twitter. Tweet at us. This week we saw a rally by thousands of folks protesting the Patriot Coal Company, a company that union officials allege, as Mike Elk and others have reported, has come up with an innovative way of shedding its pension responsibilities for its retirees. Here we saw a company spin off a new company as a legally separate entity, which has more retirees than employees. The new company has since declared bankruptcy. They're now in an ongoing bankruptcy proceeding where they're arguing that they need to transform the healthcare system within the company as well as end the current pension contributions. Workers are crying foul and alleging that the whole thing was rotten from the start, that creating a new company and shuffling all of your retirees off on it is just a savvy way of avoiding commitments that people fought for by bargaining and more importantly by organizing in the workplace. So thousands of people protested this week. Some were arrested. It's a case that's going to go forward and a struggle that we're going to continue to watch, particularly because it's just another face of what we could call the who's the boss problem, where employment as we know it is ending in the United States, where the company that actually is deciding your working conditions often has no legal responsibility for you at all. What else are you watching this week, Sarah? 
So another thing that I'm watching this week, well, it's actually two other things. Um, at, at press time, at least, there were two um, unions that had tentative deals with their the respective companies that they work for that sort of illustrate the two ends of the size spectrum among organized labor. So um, the Teamsters have a tentative deal for a new five-year contract at UPS, which covers 250,000 workers, um, which is the largest collective bargaining agreement in North America. And they have some good stuff in there. They have an increase in wages for just about everyone, um, but they've got an increase in the starting wage for new workers, which in sort of the era of two-tier contracts is a big deal. You want to take care of the people who are going to come in and have these jobs in the future, as well as the people who already have them. Um, And the creation of some 2,000 or so full-time jobs out of ones that are already part-time. So again, um, you know, helping out people who are working part-time as well as full-time. And then on the other end of the scale, a story that I've been following for many years um, since I lived in Philadelphia when I was in graduate school, Temple University School of Journalism. Um, And my sister at the time, while I I was living there, was working at the Philadelphia Art Museum. And the security guards at that art museum were trying to form a union. They ended up forming an independent union, um, the Philadelphia Security Officers Union. And they, after years of struggle with the art museum won a contract. This week, there's news that there is a tentative deal also with Allied Barton, which is a subcontractor they actually work for. Security workers at the University of Pennsylvania um, have a deal that I'm told would include 3% raises every year, um, more paid sick leave. And again, this is a very small independent union that is made up of only people who work in private security in Philadelphia and largely work for very low wages. They were making $9, $10 an hour. Um, And so, yeah, I guess the moral of putting these two stories together is that it doesn't matter how big you are when you're uh, trying to win a contract. As we're recording this, the death toll from the collapse of a building, including several garment factories in Bangladesh, is now estimated to have reached 400 people. We've seen the arrest of the owner, strikes and actions and protests by workers in the industry and violent confrontations with police. Two things that I think are important to keep in mind here. One is that Bangladesh is the second largest garment exporter in the world. China is first, as one might expect, given it is the largest country by population. Bangladesh is nowhere close to being the second largest. And so the observation that's been made by NGOs like the Worker Rights Consortium is that the conditions there are not coincidental. The country, the political culture in the country, the elite in Bangladesh, in many ways has remade the legal and economic structure that affects the garment industry specifically to appeal to Western chains like Walmart. And we see deadly consequences from that system in situations like this. The other way in which this is not coincidental is that the when one thinks about how the conditions got to be this way, here or elsewhere, and we're arguing about sweatshops in any part of the world, including the United States, it's an incomplete conversation if you're not talking about the forces that prevent workers from organizing collectively to raise those conditions, as has happened historically in the United States and elsewhere. 
I reported a year ago in The Nation about the murder of Aminul Islam, leading Bangladesh labor activist who is credibly assumed after his disappearance and his body that was found with the appearance of torture to have been murdered because of his activism. We've seen, along with violence, the filing repeatedly of what nonprofits have identified as spurious legal charges against the Bangladesh Center for Worker Solidarity and leading Bangladesh activists like Kalpana Akhtar, who I interviewed recently for The Nation. And so there is a tremendous both state and business-backed effort to prevent workers from meaningfully impacting these conditions and assuring some kind of security for themselves. We see that in the reports that workers tried to leave when there were cracks in the building and were threatened, but we see it more broadly in the ongoing and effective, unfortunately, campaign to suppress labor organizing in Bangladesh. Right. And so I read today, actually, and I believe The Guardian, that Bangladesh has literally the lowest wages in the world as far as in the garment industry, um, that this is literally the rock bottom place in the world where you can find the cheapest labor to make the clothes that we all, most of us end up wearing. And so there's a few things that about this that are, you know, causing ongoing arguments in certain sections of the U.S. media, because we have some public figures, notably most of them are well-off white men, who say that we need, that these countries, rather, we don't need sweatshops, that, but those people over there need sweatshops um, because they don't have any other options and that uh, factories like this one have helped make Bangladesh a richer country than it used to be, that workers are making a rational choice to go work in sweatshops because they can make more money than they could make as a farmer or in various other industries, and that this sort of rational calculus is basically like, well, back in the day, you know, workers in the U.S., like the ones at the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory, which is repeatedly referenced when talking about these factory collapses and fires in Bangladesh, um, we went through it, so they have to, too. And of course, that's completely false. We have the technology now to make these things better. We also understand that we shouldn't actually treat human beings like this. We understand that, sort of, for workers in this country, but a lot of people have a rather out of sight, out of mind um, attitude towards what that actually means for people in other countries who still do the manufacturing. Also, you know, after issues like this, after issues, tragedies like this, um, a lot of people start saying, well, what do I do, right? Most of the clothes you can buy in this country are made in Bangladesh. They are made in Cambodia. They are made in factories where people have, as Josh said, little opportunity to organize, um, very little voice on the job, and work in pretty awful conditions. And, the, you know, the, it's very hard to get around that, right? And as we are sort of grappling with our collective guilt for this issue, it's hard to offer up answers, right, Josh? One of the demands that's being made of the Western brands that are involved in this factory or in others where workers have died tragically from predictable accidents is that they f sign on to a fire safety agreement being put forward by groups including the International Labor Rights Forum. This agreement, as its president told me in a story for The Nation, is an intentional departure from the company-dominated labor monitoring systems that we've seen from groups that were spawned in the 90s in response to this pressure. Groups like the Fair Labor Association, where corporations, advocates have argued, effectively have a veto. 
So this agreement explicitly protects collective bargaining rights. So the question is not just journalists or politicians or people from NGOs arguing back and forth about what the market can bear or what the companies <laughs> can afford, but instead is about empowering workers to be their own auditors, to be their own safety advocates in the workplace, to say, as Kalpona Akhtar said to me, we should be able to decide whether the factories where we're working are safe. A couple smaller brands have signed on to this agreement. It's designed so it's only triggered if four brands sign on. That's a demand that activists are making. It's noteworthy that the Bangladesh Center for Worker Solidarity, for example, is explicitly not asking for people to boycott. Kalpona Akhtar described boycott at this point as suicide, but is calling for people to put pressure on these brands, brands that, as we'll continue to see and as we'll continue to watch, continue to claim that they are not the employers of these workers and that they are forces for good because they do things like make a million-dollar donation to some kind of education fund in the country. Or education funds in this country that fund charter schools. Um, I think it's really important that we acknowledge that these campaigns need to be led by the workers, whether they're the workers in Bangladesh, the workers in Walmart stores here, that we actually listen to the people who are going to be most impacted before we take action that we presume is sort of in support of these workers, but really doesn't actually help them, um, assuming that workers know best what they need. And from there, that leaves me a great place to lead into our interview today, um, where we are talking to Kathy Youngblood, who is a housekeeper at the Hyatt Andaz Hotel in West Hollywood. And she is um, campaigning with Unite Here. Full disclosure, my former employer. They're campaigning for her to be placed on the board of directors of Hyatt Hotels, um, which currently is full of people from Walmart, Goldman Sachs, private equity companies. Um, the campaign's called Someone Like Me, and um, here's Kathy talking about it. I got bills galore, I need my bread up. Am I the only person in this room that's fed up? So, Kathy, um, we want to start off by asking you about the Someone Like Me campaign. Oh, okay, great. Well, the Someone Like Me campaign is a national campaign, and I'm traveling on behalf of um, Unite Here and also myself and other hotel workers. And as I travel around the country, what I am doing is explaining to our workers, our co-workers, the Someone Like Me campaign, and, and we are calling on Hyatt to add a 13th seat to their board of directors and save that for a hotel worker, someone like me. And I've had a 100% positive response from all the workers I went to, and they thought it was a very good idea, and it's an idea whose time has come. So, Kathy, if you were on the board of the Hyatt Corporation, what would you do? Is this primarily an opportunity to put some heat and some scrutiny on Hyatt? Or if you actually got what you're demanding, do you believe that being one-thirteenth of that board would change the way that Hyatt operates? Well, yes, I do. And I, and I want to make one note. It, it would not be a demand. It would be working uh, with the other member boards because I really think that the board members and, of course, their executives right under them do not actually know what actually goes on in the hotel. So, you see, this would be an education on both our parts. I, they would learn from me and I would learn from them. 
But we've got to have time to sit down and talk. That's all we want to do is talk. We want to be listened to because they say that we are a Hyatt family. This is what Hyatt Management says, that we are a Hyatt family. Well, don't keep closing the door if I'm family. The housekeepers, the busboy, the cooks. Often we have suggestions and ideas which could help the hotel improve their performance and also in a safe manner. But the thing is, we're not listened to like we should. And that's, that's an internal problem within the Hyatt itself. And the first thing I would do on the board is have an open, honest discussion. What, what kinds of things do you think workers are saying to each other about how the job could be better that aren't being heard by management? Well, things like, um, for instance, in the housekeeping department, and I am a housekeeper at the Hyatt on Dawes in West Hollywood, California, uh, things like lighter vacuum cleaners, uh, the proper tools, fitted sheets, there are things that Hyatt can put in place and equipment and tools that they can order which, which would make our job much safer and prevent a lot of uh, motion, uh, uh, repetitive motion injuries. When I was an organizer with Unite Here, I spent some time organizing with housekeepers and also organizing in the community, talking to people about housekeeping work, and I was struck by how many people stay at hotels but don't talk to housekeepers. Maybe imagine housekeeping as equivalent as one of the management lawyers in one of the negotiations I was in said to the work that people do in their own home, cleaning the bathroom every month. So... Can you tell us some about, in your experience, what kind of work housekeeping is and how it might be different from what someone who stays in a hotel imagines is happening when they're not in the room? Well, in the hotel, um, we are the uh, first responders. We are the front line. The guests see us uh, probably first thing in the morning and perhaps the last thing at night. Um, A lot of people, well, we're treated like we're invisible, but we're really not. And, of course, you know that we're, we're very valuable to the whole Hyatt team. Um, housekeeping work is extremely fast-paced. This is not the kind of work you do at your home, okay? You can have anywhere from 13 to 28 rooms, depending on which Hyatt hotel you're working for, okay? It's, it's very hard. It's very heavy. By the time you finish, you're drained with sweat. I mean, all of your clothes are drained with sweat. Um, all the housekeepers are in pain every day uh, because of the fast pace. And then we injure ourselves. Um, say you're, you're going so fast that you run into furniture or the design of the room may not be uh, adequate enough to prevent injuries. Keep, keep, if, you, if people can picture in their head somebody running around really fast trying to do housework but in a hotel. I know that may be a stretch for some people to imagine, but for us it's very, very real. And someone like me or someone like one of my other co-workers, we know what we need. We need a reduction in rooms at most hotels. Uh, We do need the better equipment, but along with that, here's the question that I have to ask a lot of people that have never understood what hotel housekeeping is or what it's like to work in a hotel. It's very hard to explain. It would take a long time, but trust me, there are things that happen within the hotel that um, 
it, it could lead to physical pain every day. It could lead to enormous amount of stress because there is a large turnover, especially if you're at 100% occupancy in each hotel. It's very hard to relate to someone who has not felt the physical pain and who has not done that type of job in the hotel. Uh, it would take a long time to explain, but as for me, in housekeeping, I do things like push a linen cart over carpeted hallways and it weighs 120 pounds or more. Um, we use flat sheets. We use king-size flat sheets for every bed, no matter if the bed is clean or twin or roll away. We still use the king-size flat sheets on every bed. Because we don't have the fitted sheets, uh, the fitted sheets would help us um, in lifting uh, the four corners of the bed because with flat sheets you do have to lift up and tuck in um, and it's a much heavier. By the time I'm on my sixth room, I have lower back pain. This is very common among housekeepers. Um, we need adjustable tools, you know, to reach high and low. Uh, we need things like step tools. Uh, sometimes when I do the bathroom, um, in order to get it really clean, I do use a toothbrush to clean be between the tiles. I have other rooms. I mean, I have other uh, tools, but those are, it's a very detailed work. And of course, at most hotels, especially mine, we have inspection. Now we have an inspection sheet and it's a hundred point inspection sheet. And lo and behold, if you miss something or, or you forget something, uh, we have to pass this by 94% every day. But the thing is, we do know how to service the guests, but we are the ones that keep the guests coming back. And a lot of people don't understand exactly what we do, and I would just have to say, man, you'd have to try housekeeping to yeah. really understand it, but take it from me, it is so hard. So in terms of Hyatt, Hyatt has become sort of the number one target for Unite Here, has been sort of an example of all of the problems with these big hotel chains that make tons of money and, and don't treat their workers very well. Um, can you tell us some more about the problems with the Hyatt chain, the way the businesses run, um, some of the problems with that they've had with the union? Well, you, you know that um, uh, we haven't had a uh, contract and it's expired almost three years now. But the Someone Like Me campaign, um, now I am not on the negotiating team, so I can't tell you all the details of, you know, exactly what we've settled on already or we've yet to gain in each of the individual contracts around the country. Mm -hmm. But under the Someone Like Me campaign, when I'm talking to the employees, they tell me, they trust me. They tell me stories, they tell me the truth that they would not, uh, perhaps they're too fearful to tell their immediate supervisor. But the Hyatt Corporation, the board of directors sets the tone. They have an executive leadership team directly under the uh, board of directors. And these are the people that implement all the changes and as far as this is how a hotel should be run. Under Hyatt, when you're working for Hyatt, there's this chain of command that you, if you want to discuss or complain about anything, there's this so-called chain of command you're supposed to follow. So when you're in management, when you're talking management and you're asking, well, a lot of what you're asking for or the discussion gets lost in the shuffle and your answers, uh, you don't really get answers. So that's, that's a, a major source of irritation for a lot of the workers. 
and it's an ongoing problem. It's a systemic problem, and it's one that needs to be dealt with. It's just their way of doing business. I don't think that Hyatt is too big of an operation. I just think they need to tighten in the reins, and I think they need to appoint people who can really settle these issues that come up in these individual hotels. Um, and let's face it, all of the in high employees, even a lot of managers, they're doing um, three jobs in the place of one person. This is a big problem, too. So sometimes they don't have time to attend to whatever it is you're asking for. So it, it, it's an ongoing problem. It's very, very frustrating. So let's talk about one of the people who has gotten to serve on Hyatt's board. That's Penny Pritzker, who's also an heir to the Hyatt fortune. Pritzker, like four years ago, but now even more intensively, is being rumored as President Obama's next Secretary of Commerce. What do you think about whether Penny Pritzker should be in President Obama's cabinet and what would you say to him? If she is appointed and accepted as Secretary of Commerce, uh, well, that's a good thing. And I wish her all the best, but I do wish that she would sit down and talk to me. Um, I think she can learn a lot. Of course, I can learn a lot from her. But we are family. We're talking about working in Hyatt. We are family. And... Um, I really don't know uh, if she's going to be nominated. I don't know that. I mean, it hasn't come out yet. But I wish her the best. But, oh, my, her and, and the rest of the board, wouldn't it be just dandy if they could sit down and talk to me and really understand what the problem is, especially before she exits the board, if that's the case? Yeah. So the last time you and I spoke, um, we talked about the Hyatt that you work at in West Hollywood, um, using iPods to keep track of the housekeepers and where you were in the hotel and your work day every day. Um, is that still going on? Can you tell our listeners a little bit about that for people who didn't read that story? Uh, yes, they do have an iPod. Now, an iPod is a similar size as an iPhone, right. but it is an iPod. And of course, in this iPod is coded Hyatt's uh, operating systems. So I'm not sure... And I don't think that they meant for this thing to be like a surveillance tool, but that's what it has become, in my opinion. And the iPod system uh, that's in our hotel, I think, as far as I can remember, we were the first Hyatt on Dodge, you know, in the on Dodge chain to use it. And the problem was they didn't really teach us correct. We didn't have enough instruction when they first rolled the system out. So that was a major source of confusion and also tension between we housekeeping and you have to deal with new technology. And we were never opposed to new technology. It's just you need a training. You need the proper training whenever something like that is introduced. And we feel that Hyatt did not do that. Now, also, um, it is completely computerized system, of course, so they know, uh, each manager would know when you're in a room and how much time you're taking in the room because you punch in when you first enter the room and you punch out when you've cleaned the room. Yeah, and in terms of sort of the, one of the things I think we talked about before was that the the iPod would sort of tell you, like, okay, you finished this room on this one floor and now you have to go all the way up to this other floor to do this other room rather than setting your own schedule on uh, how you're going to do it? Yes, that's a problem. Uh, say, let, let's say, uh, hypothetical, let's say, for instance, I have room 80, 
12. And I punch in, and I clean the room, and I punch out, and then the iPod may send me to another room on another floor. Um, we are not allowed often to do the same rooms, uh, you know, say I'm assigned to the eighth floor. Well, I'm not allowed to finish all my rooms on one floor. I have to go where the iPod tells me to go. So that can take a lot of time, and of course that can, um, it's very discouraging, especially when you're in the hallway and you see a guest exit, and maybe that room is on your iPod to clean. So the old system used to be they used to hand us a piece of paper, and these pieces of paper were called our board. Each housekeeper gets a board in the morning. And so uh, we would work the rooms uh, whichever way we wanted. But with this iPod, you go where um, you go where the iPod tells you. Now, they do have rush rooms, and uh, rush rooms are when the guest is either at the hotel or the guest is coming in soon, and these rooms have to be clean soon. So... Um, that's probably the reason why you have to skip to another floor, um, and there are rooms. Everything is coded. It's it's prioritized system. Yeah. So it's no longer left up to the housekeeper. It's really left up to the iPod, <laughs> whoever codes that in. Yeah. So we wanted to ask you to close about where you think you are and where you think your coworkers are in this multi-year fight with Hyatt. We've seen this comprehensive campaign by Unite Here, the hotel union, to push Hyatt to very dramatically change its business model. It's something I worked on a little bit when I was at the union. We've seen a national tour by members of the Hyatt 100, non-union workers who were terminated en masse and replaced with subcontractors at three Boston Hyatts. We saw a coalition with LGBT activists around the Manchester Hyatt in Southern California, whose owner was a major funder of Prop 8. We've seen Unite Here team up with other groups to fight against pre-employment credit checks when the Hyatt family, the Pritzkers, was in the pre-employment credit check business as well. We've seen strikes, coordinated strikes, by union members at Hyatt, more recently, we've seen this national boycott of most Hyatts by Unite Here with community and labor allies. Where are we now? Do you believe that Unite Here and allies are getting traction against Hyatt? Is this going to be a 20-year fight? Do you believe that one side or the other is winning? Well, I, I believe um, that the fight as far as Unite Here and myself is not over. Uh, we're very part... Uh, we're very far apart on some issues. Uh, subcontracting is a major issue where there's tension uh, for us as far as we want all of these workers hired full-time because with subcontracting, they're paying low wages and no benefits. So this is not good. Uh, subcontracting keeps you in poverty. Okay, the idea of getting a job in a business is perhaps that you can move up someday and make more money, get a better position, get a better job. Subcontracting, uh, as a subcontracted worker, there's no way that you can uh, climb up the ladder. Um, 
and I say the latter of success. So that's a very personal source of irritation for me because as I went around the country, I've interviewed a lot of subcontracted workers, and they are really not treated uh, very well in a lot of the hotels, and that's the truth. Uh, now, the other issues, uh, all of those that you mentioned, um, if you ask me where do I think we are, um, I, I think that we're winning. And I think it's a process of we're wearing Hyatt down with the truth. Now, Hyatt is composed of, uh, you know, they're run by billionaires and millionaires. And that's fine. But I think we've got a lot of discussion. We've got a lot more um, discussion ahead of us. I see us winning everything that we're asking for. I see us winning a lot of the things um, that we've been asking for for years. I have not given up the fight on getting fitted sheets and better tools, especially at my hotel and other hotels. There are a lot of instances where if they would just sit down and talk to someone like me, you know, that would really help because I really don't think, and especially that um, the hired hierarchy knows what exactly the problem is. So when you go to the table in a negotiation session, I think there's still we're still far apart and there's we're not going to settle for less. We're going to settle for what we need to make our job safer. We're going to settle for what we want. We're going to settle for decent pay. We don't want subcontracting anymore. And you have to remember, this is a fight in which Hyatt is looked upon as the industry leader. People are looking to Hyatt. Hyatt is doing very well financially. They're making a lot of money. So, of course, business leaders would look to the Hyatt business model. But Hyatt's business model, as far as I'm concerned, needs to change because we need what we know that we need. And we have so many uh, requests, you know, that all they have to do is sit down and talk. And, you know, I always say there's three types of sides to the story, not two. There's three sides. It's yours, mine, and the truth. So let's, let's just sit down and deal with this issue once and for all. But I just think it's time for Hyatt as a giant corporation to sit down with someone like me and really have an honest discussion because we like the hotel industry. Uh, we don't care if, if Hyatt makes a lot of money. We welcome Hyatt making even more money. But if they would listen to us, think how much money they more money they would make. I mean, that certainly would get the attention of a well-rounded business person. And I ain't even got to explain how stressed I be. Life ain't perfect, but it's all worth it. So systematic, be part of that circuit. Robotic at work when I'm counting them pyramids. If you're naive, then I know you ain't hearing this. This is a story that we'll be following. The comprehensive campaign effort reveals many of the contours of these comprehensive campaigns that we're seeing now. As we discussed with Kathy, Unite here has tried to use a combination of worker mobilization on the shop floor and tactics that target Hyatt's brand, that find expected or unexpected allies, that go after the Pritzker family's other investments. This campaign has been going on for a while. It's drawn some attention, but there's no reason to expect that a peace deal or a victory is on on the immediate horizon. The question of whether smart, effective, face-to-face, -face, rigorous organizing combined with 
a strategic campaign that targets a company's pressure points elsewhere can make a company say yes when it really, really wants to say no is one of the questions that is at the heart of what kind of future there is for organized labor in the United States. So we'll be watching. With that, we turn to our weekly ending segment. Longtime four-week viewers will know this is called ARG. I wish I had written that story. I love when he says that. I think I lost my voice saying that last week. Sorry, Josh. Sarah, what did you read that filled your veins with tremendous envy over the past week? So I last week mentioned, um, well, last week we talked about my piece in Jacobin magazine, and I also mentioned um, my editor Megan Erickson's piece in Jacobin. Um, I'm going to continue that theme this week and talk about another piece in the current issue of Jacobin, um, written by Nicole Ashoff. I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly, Nicole. The piece is called Imported from Detroit, and um, it's a story, she looks at the most recent Chrysler um, ad campaign, the Imported from Detroit campaign. Um, the Super Bowl ads the last couple of years that we've seen, the reality of the auto bailouts in the current economy in the whole country, the work ethic, very notably, that is being pushed by these ads, the sort of ideology behind these ads, and the Detroit that we really should be learning from, which is not the one that auto companies and big corporations want us to learn from. It's the Detroit that, you know, famously had sit-down strikes in auto factories and the Detroit of the you know, the heyday of the UAW. This week I read an excellent piece by the community organizer and writer Esther Wong for the American Prospect. Esther is reporting from China in a piece called As Walmart Swallows China's Economy, Workers Fight Back. She documents the examples of labor uprisings at various points in Walmart's supply chain within China. She goes into the history of Walmart's accord with the official state union in China, the ways in which workers are now rising up, often in spite of or outside of that union. She places this in the context both of this pattern of militancy against Walmart that we see at various places in the world and the question of the rise of strikes and the rise of unauthorized unsanctioned by the official union activism by workers in China and she looks at where this might go it's a must read and with that that brings us to the end of this week's podcast um, as usual we hope you've enjoyed and we invite you to send us comments um, you can tweet at us with the hashtag belabored um, we also invite you to follow our guest Kathy Youngblood on Twitter her Twitter handle is chefyoungblood7 um, and um, I don't know if you like listening to us and you do so using iTunes, I believe iTunes has an option for you to inform iTunes and its other users of that. <laughs> um, yes, and uh, we'll be back next week with more Belated. We will. This life is hard, so hard I must go. Hey,